Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the annals of English history, the name Alfred the Great resonates with echoes of valour, wisdom and resilience. Alfred ascended to the throne of Wessex in the year 871, inheriting a kingdom on the brink of collapse. His reign, marked by unwavering determination and strategic brilliance, earned him the epithet The Great. Alfred's enduring legacy as the saviour of Wessex lies in his remarkable ability to transform adversity into triumph, ultimately preserving the spirit and identity of his kingdom. As the King of Wessex from the years 871 to 899, Alfred's legacy transcends his time, leaving an indelible mark on the cultural, political and intellectual foundations of England. Alfred, born into royalty, would have the enormous task of defending Wessex from the Viking invaders, who had already taken the ancient kingdoms of East Anglia and Northumbria. The neighbouring kings were dropping like flies, and it fell to Alfred to defend the last Saxon kingdom. This is his story. Alfred was born in the village of Wanting, in Berkshire in the year 849. He was the youngest of five sons, sired by King Ethelwulf of Wessex and his first wife, Osber. As the youngest sibling, he was not groomed for kingship. His older brothers were expected to inherit the throne, leaving Alfred free to pursue his intellectual pursuits and personal interests. The lack of immediate royal responsibilities allowed him the freedom to delve into education and learning, fostering a deep love for knowledge and culture that would later define his reign. Ethelwulf, Alfred's father, was a notable warrior and had defeated the armies of Vikings on several occasions. Alfred's oldest brother was Ethelstan, who ruled as the King of Kent and was known as a fierce fighter. However, he would die before his father in the year 851. Ethelbald was the second born, and then came Ethelbert, and then Ethelred, and finally, there was Alfred. In the year 853, at the age of four, Alfred is reported by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle to have accompanied his father King Ethelwulf to Rome, where he was confirmed by Pope Leo IV. This was a big deal at the time, as barely anyone from Alfred's lands had travelled to Europe, and meeting the Pope would have been the pilgrimage of a lifetime. However, during Alfred's return home from Rome in the year 856, Ethelwulf was deposed by his son Ethelbald and Alfred's eldest brother. Ethelbald, the eldest son of King Ethelwulf, was a prince driven by ambition. In a bold and audacious move, he usurped the throne from his father, sparking a period of political turmoil within Wessex. His actions, driven by a hunger for power and impatience to rule, plunged the kingdom into uncertainty. The consequences of this usurpation were far-reaching, affecting not only the political landscape, but also the lives of those close to the throne, including a young and impressionable Alfred. 
With civil war looming, the magnates of the realm met in council to arrange a compromise. Ethelbald would retain the western shires, and Ethelwulf would rule in the east. When King Ethelwulf died in the year 858, Wessex was claimed by Ethelbald, who has a rather negative reputation according to later chroniclers and historians. William of Malmesbury, the foremost English historian of the 12th century, wrote, Ethelbald, who was worthless and disloyal to his father, defiled his father's marriage bed, for after his father's death, he sank so low as to marry his stepmother Judith. However, Judith may have done this to avoid the usual fate of widows being sent to a convent. To Ethelbald, this marriage was advantageous because of Judith's belonging to the Carolingian dynasty, which would allow him to enhance his status, placing him above his brothers. Ethelwulf's youngest son, Alfred, was a witness to the chaos that ensued after Ethelbald's power grab. These formative years were marked by instability, fear and uncertainty. Living in the shadow of a usurping brother, Alfred was exposed to the harsh realities of court politics from a young age. The familial discord and the struggle for power would have had a profound impact on his worldview, instilling in him a deep sense of caution, resilience and determination. Nevertheless, little is known about Ethelbald's reign and he only lasted on the throne for two years and he fathered no children leaving the throne to his younger brother, Ethelbert, in the year 860. When Alfred's older brother, Ethelbert, ascended to the throne, Alfred would have been around 12 years old, and the new king would appear to be on good terms with his two younger brothers, Ethelred and Alfred. The reign of Ethelbert unfolded against a backdrop of relentless Viking invasions that posed a grave threat to the stability of Wessex. These raids tested the mettle of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, demanding strategic acumen and military prowess. Additionally, internal dynastic struggles within Wessex added another layer of complexity to Ethelbert's rule. As he navigated these challenges, the young Alfred observed firsthand the pressures and responsibilities of kingship. Ethelbert's reign began and ended with raids by Vikings. In the year 860, a Viking army sailed from the Somme to England and sacked Winchester, but they were defeated by the men of Hampshire and Berkshire. Probably in the autumn of the year 864, another Viking army camped on Thanet and were promised money in return for peace, but they broke their promise and ravaged eastern Kent. These attacks were minor, compared with events after Ethelbert's death, which would result in the whole of England being overran by the great heathen army. Ethelbert died of unknown causes in the autumn of the year 865. He was buried at Sherborne Abbey in Dorset, beside his brother Ethelbald, and was succeeded by his younger brother Ethelred. Three of Alfred's older brothers had now died childless, and the reigns of his older brothers had moulded him into a man. Alfred would have been around 16 years old when his older brother Ethelred took the crown, and although his brother would prove to be a capable ruler, the threat the whole of England faced was something that had not been seen since the time of the Romans. Previously, the country had suffered from sporadic raids, but now it faced invasion, aiming at conquest and settlement. A large force of Vikings, called by contemporaries the Great Heathen Army, arrived in East Anglia. The Ragnarsons had arrived in the country and were seeking revenge in Northumbria for the death of their father, Ragnar Lothbrok. The Ragnarsons consisted of Ubba, Ivar the Boneless, Sigurd Snake in the Eye, Bjorn Ironside, and Halfdan, all capable and legendary warriors commanding their own armies. 
King Edmund purchased a peace by paying tribute to the Vikings, and they would stay a year in East Anglia, building up their strength. The Vikings then made their way to York and conquered Northumbria, installing a puppet king. Sigurd and Bjorn Ragnarsson would go back to their own kingdoms after the fall of Northumbria. Meanwhile, Ivar, Ubba and Halfdan would remain burning and pillaging. Ivar the Boneless had just put an end to the line of kings in Northumbria, and he and his great pagan army were on the move south, with the intention to take Mercia as their own. In the year 867, they took Nottingham in Mercia, and spent the winter there. King Buchred of Mercia appealed to King Ethelred of Wessex for help. Ethelred and Alfred led a large West Saxon army to Nottingham, and besieged the Vikings. But the Vikings refused to leave the safety of the town's defences. The combined Mercian and Wessex armies were unable to breach the earth's ramparts and ditch. Eventually, Bugred bought the Vikings off. The Vikings then went back to York. In the year 869, the Norsemen returned to East Anglia and conquered the kingdom, killing King Edmund. Two out of the four great kingdoms of England had now fallen. However, Ivar the Boneless would go north with his contingent of the great heathen army, leaving command to his brothers, Halfton. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. And Ubba, and the Danish warlord named Guthrum. During Ethelred's reign, Alfred participated in the war effort against the Vikings. This hands-on experience provided him with valuable military skills and tactical knowledge. He learnt the art of warfare, strategic planning, and the importance of adaptability in the face of a relentless enemy. The battles between the great heathen army and the Wessex rulers were marked by extraordinary ferocity, strategic brilliance, and a determination that would shape the fate of a nation. King Ethelred, confronted with this unprecedented threat, displayed remarkable defiance. He marshalled his forces, fortified towns, and engaged the great heathen army in a series of fierce battles. The intensity of these confrontations mirrored the high stakes. The very survival of Wessex and its culture hung in the balance. Ethelred's determination and bravery in face of overwhelming odds inspired his people and showcased the resilience of the Anglo-Saxon spirit. At the end of the year 870, the Vikings attempted to conquer Wessex and made their way from East Anglia to Reading. On the 4th of January, King Ethelred of Wessex and Prince Alfred would meet the Vikings with a Saxon army and fought their way into the town, slaughtering all the Danes outside. This would culminate in the Battle of Reading on the 4th of January in the year 871. When Ethelred's army would reach the town gate, the Vikings under the command of Halfdan Ragnarsson would burst out of the gates, creating a counter-attack, completely slaughtering the Saxons. The level of carnage was immense, and King Ethelred and Prince Alfred barely escaped the battlefield with their lives, only escaping due to their better knowledge of the local terrain, which allowed them to lose their Viking pursuers by crossing the river Ludden. Their surviving forces regrouped at Windsor, and four days later, Ethelred and Alfred would lead their forces again in the Battle of Ashdown. The Vikings would arrive first and deployed themselves at the top of the ridge, 
giving them the advantage. They then divided their forces into two contingents, one under Ivar's brother King Halfdan, and another under the Viking Earls. Alfred sent scouts, who reported this back to him, and Ethelred and himself decided to copy the Viking formation, with Ethelred facing King Halfdan's force, and Alfred's forces would face the other. Before the battle, King Ethelred would retire to his tent for mass, whilst Alfred rallied his men and led his forces to the battlefield. Both the Vikings and the Saxons formed a shield wall and approached one another. Alfred, knowing the enemy had the advantage, decided to attack and led his men in a charge up the hill. The two armies would collide and the battle would rage on until Ethelred then also led a charge. This would result in a Saxon victory. Ethelred and Alfred would then pursue the Vikings in a blood rage, cutting down all fleeing their wrath, until night fell upon them. Alfred was quickly gaining a repute as a savage warrior and a mighty leader of men. However, the victory was short-lived. Two weeks later, Ethelred and Alfred were defeated at the royal estate of Basing in the Battle of Basing. Despite facing devastating defeats and the loss of significant territories, Wessex did not yield. The resistance of Ethelred, Alfred and their people was unmatched. However, it was at the Battle of Merton on the 22nd of March in the year 871 where the Vikings turned the tide of the war. Bishop Haymond was killed, as were many important men, and after this battle, a great summer army came to Reading. Afterwards at Easter, King Ethered died. It has been widely speculated by historians that Ethelred died from the wounds he acquired over the many back-to-back -back battles he was involved in against the Vikings. The deaths of Alfred's four older brothers, Ethelstan, Ethelbald, Ethelbert and Ethelred, left him as the sole surviving heir to the throne of Wessex. The hopes and expectations of the Wessex dynasty rested solely upon Alfred's shoulders. As the last remaining heir, he was expected not only to continue the lineage, but also defend the kingdom against Viking incursions and internal strife. This immense pressure, coupled with the awareness and challenges faced by his predecessors, compelled Alfred to mature swiftly, developing a keen understanding of the complexities of leadership. The loss of his brothers became a crucible in which Alfred's character was forged, witnessing the fragility of life and the impermanence of power. He internalized the importance of resilience, determination, and adaptability. These experiences fostered in him a sense of duty towards his people, a commitment to defending his kingdom, and an unwavering resolve to leave a lasting legacy. His brother Ethelred, however, left behind two underage sons after his death, Ethelhelm and Ethelwold. Ethelred and Alfred had made an agreement earlier that the surviving brother of the battles would be king. Alfred's ascension to the throne went uncontested, as they needed a man and a leader to lead them through many dark and uncertain days. While Alfred was busy with the burial ceremonies for his brother, the Danes defeated the Saxon army in his absence at an unnamed spot and then again in his presence at Wilton in May. The defeat at Wilton left Alfred hopeless. How could he remove these Vikings from his lands? He was forced instead to make a peace with them, according to sources that do not tell what the terms of the peace were. Although not mentioned by Asser or by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Alfred probably paid the Vikings silver to leave. For the next five years, the Danes occupied other parts of England, and in the year 874, the Vikings overran Mercia and drove its king Buchred into exile. 
where he went to Rome and would never return to the British Isles. The Vikings then installed the puppet king Seolwulf, demanding oaths of loyalty from the new king. Following this victory, the great heathen army again split. Halfdan went north to fight against the Picts of Strathclyde, while Guthrum and Ubba continued fighting in Wessex. In the year 876, under their new leader Guthrum, the Danes slipped past the Saxon army and attacked and occupied Wareham in Dorset. Alfred blockaded them, but was unable to take Wareham by assault. He then negotiated a peace, which involved an exchange of hostages and oaths, which the Danes swore on a holy ring associated with the worship of Thor. However, the Danes broke their word and after killing all the hostages, slipped away under the cover of night. However, many Viking ships had been scattered by a storm and the Danes were forced to submit and withdraw to Mercia. Guthrum, however, would come up with a cunning plan. In January of the year 878, the Danes made a sudden attack on Chippenham, a royal stronghold in which Alfred had been staying over Christmas. Alfred's personal guard were killed and he barely escaped with his life. In the face of this devastating loss, Alfred made a strategic decision that would prove pivotal. He retreated to the marshes of Somerset, a region of natural fortifications and strategic advantage. From this secure base, he meticulously reorganized his forces, implementing military reforms and instilling a sense of discipline and unity among his loyal troops. This period of retreat became a transformative experience for Alfred, offering him the opportunity to reflect, strategize, and emerge as a more resilient and strategic leader. However, Guthrum's successful siege and capture of Chippenham in the heart of Wessex sent shockwaves throughout the kingdom. The loss of a major stronghold struck at the very core of Alfred's realm, leaving his people in a state of fear and uncertainty. Wessex was pushed to the brink. With the Viking threat looming large, many began to question the ability of their young king to protect and defend their homeland. A legend originating from 12th century chroniclers tell how when Alfred first fled to the Somerset levels, Alfred was given shelter by a peasant woman who, unaware of his identity, left him to watch some Wheaton cakes she had left cooking on the fire. Preoccupied with the problems of his kingdom, Alfred accidentally let the cakes burn and was scolded by the woman upon her return. Alfred, now the king of nothing, had not been told off like that since he was a child, and it brought him some joy. The year 878 was the low mark in the history of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, with all the other kingdoms having fallen to the Vikings. Wessex alone was resisting, but with Alfred in exile in the marshes and no resources, the future of Wessex and England was unclear. Nevertheless, news had reached Alfred on the death of two Ragnarsons. Ubba had been slain at the Battle of Kernwit by the Elderman of Devon, Odder, which was a huge blow to the Vikings. In addition, Halfdan had been slain in Dublin in the year 877 by his nephew Bardur Iverson. It seems Halfdan was campaigning to regain his brother Ivar's lost crown in Dublin, but ended up being killed in the Battle of Strangford Lau by his own kin. The death of these two legendary commanders would give Alfred some hope. It was in this moment of solitude and reflection that Alfred resolved to take a bold step to emerge from his hiding and rally his men for a decisive stand against the Viking invaders. Egbert's stone held historical significance, as it was named after King Egbert, Alfred's grandfather, 
who had united many Anglo-Saxon kingdoms under his rule. Choosing this site to summon his men carried a powerful symbolism. It invoked the spirit of unity and the legacy of Wessex's past glory. By gathering at Egbert's stone, Alfred intended to remind his men of their shared heritage, their ancestral unity, and the importance of defending their homeland against foreign invaders. In May, Alfred rode to Egbert's stone, where he was met by all the people of Somerset, Wiltshire, and Hampshire, and they rejoiced to see their king. When Alfred emerged from his hiding, and called upon his men to gather at Egbert's stone, his words resonated with a sense of urgency, determination, and hope. He spoke of the resilience of the Anglo-Saxon people, their shared history, and the need to reclaim their homeland from the Vikings. Alfred's unwavering resolve and eloquence inspired his men, instilling in them a newfound determination to fight for their kingdom and their way of life. Alfred had retained the loyalty of the Eldermen, Royal Reeves, and King Stens, who had maintained their positions of authority in their lands by not submitting to the Vikings, and would answer Alfred's summons to war. This upcoming battle would decide the fate of Wessex and England. As if the Saxons lost, then the whole of England would be in the hands of the Viking invaders. According to Brother Asser, who wrote a biography of Alfred, this is what transpired. Fighting ferociously, forming a dense shield wall against the whole army of the pagans, and striving long and bravely, at last, Alfred gained the victory. He overthrew the pagans with a great slaughter, and smiting the fugitives, he pursued them as far as the fortress. Alfred pursued the Danes to their stronghold at Chippenham, and starved them into submission. One of the terms of the surrender was that Guthrum convert to Christianity. Three weeks later, the Danish chief Guthrum and 29 of his men were baptised at Alfred's court, with Alfred receiving Guthrum as his spiritual son. The Battle of Eddington ended in a resounding victory for Alfred and the Anglo-Saxons. Guthrum and his Viking forces were decisively defeated, resulting in the signing of the Treaty of Wedmore. The treaty established clear boundaries between the Anglo-Saxon and Viking territories, bringing a temporary halt to the Viking invasions and securing Wessex from immediate threats. Alfred's victory at Eddington allowed him to consolidate his power, fortify his kingdom, and lay the foundation for the eventual unification of England under Wessex's rule. Thus began the quiet years of Alfred's reign. Alfred built up the defences of his kingdom to ensure that it was not threatened by the Danes again. He reorganised his army and built a series of well-defended settlements across southern England. He also established a navy for use against the Danish raiders, who continued to harass the coast. As an administrator, Alfred advocated justice and order, and established a code of laws. He had a strong belief in the importance of education, and learnt Latin in his late thirties. He then arranged, and himself took part in, the translation of books from Latin to Anglo-Saxon. In the year 886, Alfred reoccupied the city of London. Alfred entrusted the city to the care of his son-in-law Ethelred, the Elderman of Mercia, who had married his daughter Ethelfled, who would later go on to be known as the Lady of Mercia. During this period, almost all chroniclers agree that the Saxon people of pre-unified England submitted to Alfred. This was not, however, the point at which Alfred came to become known as the King of England. 
In fact, he would never adopt the title for himself, even though he was the king of all the land, in all but name. Alfred's unwavering determination, and his ability to inspire his people, earned him the title King of the Anglo-Saxons. His diplomatic prowess and military successes gradually led to the unification of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms under the banner of Wessex. Through alliances, strategic marriages, and his reputation as a just and wise ruler, Alfred created a sense of shared identity among the Anglo-Saxon realms. Alfred the Great's legacy as the King of the Anglo-Saxons is a testament to his visionary leadership, political astuteness, and unwavering dedication to his people. His reign not only repelled external threats, but also sowed the seeds of unity and cultural identity, shaping the course of English history. Alfred's achievements as a statesman, military leader, and patron of learning have left an indelible mark on the identity of the English nation, making him not just a king, but a revered architect of united England. Alfred died on the 26th of October in the year 899, at the age of 51. How he died is unknown, although he suffered throughout his life with a painful and unpleasant illness. King Alfred was a great man, portrayed here in a quote by Bishop Asser. He was superior to all of his brothers, both in wisdom and in all good habits. And furthermore, because he was warlike beyond measure and victorious in almost all battles. Although Alfred was troubled by health problems throughout his life, statues of Alfred in Winchester and Wantage portray him as a great warrior. However, evidence suggests that he was not your traditional tall hulking warrior, and had bouts where he would fall ill. But this wouldn't hold him back, and he never lacked in courage, and fought alongside his men, which if anything, makes him that much greater. The Viking raids during the 9th century, spearheaded by legendary figures like the Ragnarsons, posed a threat to the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, including Alfred's Wessex. These invaders, driven by conquest and plunder, left a trail of destruction in their wake, challenging the survival for the English way of life. In the face of such dire circumstances, Alfred emerged as the unyielding guardian of his people, determined to repel the Viking invaders and preserve the future of England. Alfred was also extremely lucky, as Halfdan and Ubber would die unexpectedly. Nevertheless, Alfred's resolve was the same, and he would live or die fighting. Alfred the Great's legacy as the saviour of England from the Vikings is a testament to his heroic resolve and the enduring impact on the nation's history. His ability to navigate the most challenging of circumstances, defeat legendary foes, and unite his people in the face of adversity, cemented his reputation as one of England's greatest monarchs. Alfred's legacy continues to inspire generations, serving as a reminder of the power of courage, determination, and leadership in safeguarding a nation's future. Upon Alfred's death, his son Edward the Elder would take the crown. However, the power struggle that ensued after the death of Alfred the Great was a tumultuous period in English history. It revealed the challenges of succession, the complexities of internal politics, and the persistent threats posed by external adversaries. However, it also demonstrated the resilience of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and the eventual emergence of a unified England. The struggles and triumphs of this period laid the foundation for the strong centralised monarchy that would characterise medieval England. 
leaving a lasting legacy of political stability and national unity. However, his son Edward remains largely forgotten and almost neglected from history. Many historians have described his life as being incomparably more glorious in the power of his rule than his father. He was also superior to his father Alfred in terms of military success. So let's delve into the life of this warrior king and find out more about him and his life of war and expansion. First, let's look at his ancestry and early life. Edward's father was Alfred the Great, the king of the Anglo-Saxons, and his mother was Elswith, who was a Mercian noblewoman. He was born in the year 874, at the height of the Viking Age. His father Alfred would spend much time and effort fighting against the Viking invaders in order to keep his lands. Alfred's capital of Winchester was taken by the Vikings and he was then forced into exile. He resided in the marshes of Somerset until the men of Wessex and Mercia united. In a battle now known as the Battle of Eddington, the Saxons defeated the Vikings and Alfred took back his lands. So Edward's childhood was very turbulent in the early years, due to the uncertainty of England's fate. After the Battle of Eddington, the Vikings still occupied Northumbria, East Anglia and Eastern Mercia, leaving just the Kingdom of Wessex, which had its independence. The lands the Vikings had taken were known as the Danelaw, as they had their own Viking kings, and in turn, their own laws. Edward's most famous sibling was Ethelfled, who would later become the Lady of the Mercians, and would help Edward much once he ascended to kinship. According to the monk Asser, who wrote a biography on Alfred, called The Life of King Alfred, Edward was educated at court by tutors, and he was read psalms and old English poems. He was taught humility, and Edward was described as being obedient and friendly as a child. Edward's later life would prove turbulent once again, however, due to problems with the succession of the Crown of Wessex. Edward was the son of King Alfred, and when he came of age, he was given the title of Etheling by his father. The Etheling is an old English term used to describe princes of the royal dynasty who were eligible for kinship. Alfred had an older brother that was king before him, named Ethelred I. Like Alfred, Ethelred was a warrior king, and the two brothers fought together on many occasions to protect their lands from the Viking invaders. After the Battle of Merton in 871, Ethelred was wounded and died shortly after. He departed this world in his prime at around the age of 26. He left two sons, Ethelhelm, who was the elder of the two, and Ethelwold. Ethelred's two sons were still infants when he died, and due to the constant threat of the Vikings, Wessex needed a leader, so the crown passed to Alfred, the battle-hardened warrior prince. So you could say that technically the crown should pass to one of Ethelred's sons after the death of Alfred. That's what one of his sons thought too. So even though Edward was the son of the reigning king, his ascension to the throne was not assured due to his cousin's claim to the throne. Alfred, of course, wanted his own son to be king, and would make sure he was trained in the art of combat and diplomacy, so that the Witten saw him as the best candidate for the throne. In the year 893, Edward defeated the Vikings in the Battle of Farnham, portraying him as a warrior prince who would die for his lands, and also a man who could lead, and who could be trusted not to fold in the thick of battle. In the year 893, Edward married Ekkin. Barely anything is known of her or her background. She did, however, give Edward a son, the future King Ethelstan. Alfred the Great would soon grow ill and would die in the year 899. His grooming of Edward to become the future King succeeded and the Witten accepted his claim. Ethelwald, however, disputed the succession and stormed out of court. The elderman who comprised the Witten knew that this could mean civil war. 
Ethelwold would leave an eerie feeling in the room as Edward sat on the seat of his father, mentally preparing himself for what was to come. Ethelwold and his loyalists would seize the royal estates of Wimborne and Christchurch. Edward swiftly rode with an army to Wimborne and Ethelwold declared that he would live or die there. He then left in the dead of night and rode to Northumbria. Out of desperation, he went against what his father Ethelred had died for and sided with the Vikings. Ethelwold's quest for the throne led to Essex, where he formed an alliance with Eric, the Viking king of East Anglia. He travelled through the Danelaw, making it known that he was the true heir of the crown of Wessex, and no doubt promised the Vikings much should he ascend to the throne. Ethelwold and his new allies would soon ravage English Mercia and northern Wessex. The rumours were no longer rumours. Ethelwold had spilled English blood with his Viking allies. The only outcome for Edward or Ethelwold was death. Edward retaliated and ravaged East Anglia. This forced Ethelwold and the Viking forces to return to defend their own lands. Edward ordered his army to retreat when he spotted Ethelred's soldiers, but the men of Kent disobeyed his order and stayed to fight. So in December, in the year 902, the Battle of Holm would take place. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Vikings won the battle, but they suffered heavy losses. The men of Kent fought hard, and amongst the fallen were the leaders of the Viking army, Ethelwold the King of York, and Eric, the King of East Anglia, would both lay dead on the field of battle. After years of uncertainty, treachery and bloodshed, the threat to Edward's crown had come to an end. After the Battle of Holm, there were no recorded conflicts until the year 909, when Edward sent a combined West Saxon and Mercian army to seize the bones of the Northumbrian royal saint Oswald. The Vikings would then raid northern Mercia, but on their way back to their lands, they were met by a combined army of the men of Wessex and men of Mercia. Ethelfled would meet the three Viking kings at Tettenhall with an army. Also present was her brother Edward with the forces of Wessex. And so the Battle of Tettenhall began. The allies of Wessex and Mercia trapped their Viking enemy and inflicted such a slaughter that it was reported in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that thousands of men were slain. The three Viking kings of Northumbria were amongst the fallen and died there on the battlefield. The Vikings now knew to fear the warrior siblings that were Edward and Ethelfled. Edward then remembered his father and his dream of a united England. He looked to the Danelaw and saw it was ripe for the taking, with their many kings having fallen in recent battles. Before marching into the Danelaw and taking it, Edward had to secure his defences, so he and his sister Ethelfled began the construction of many fortresses to guard their lands against Viking invasions. This would last from the year 911 to 917. The year 917 would prove to be the decisive year in the war between Saxon and Viking. The Vikings attacked Edward's fortress at Towchester and Bedford, but the attacks were failures. The Vikings also had their own strongholds, one being at Tempsford, but the English forces stormed it and killed the last Viking king of East Anglia. The Viking forces of Northampton, Cambridge and East Anglia would soon submit to Edward, something his father Alfred could only dream of. In the year 918, Ethelfled, the Lady of Mercia, would die and Edward would swiftly remove Elfwyn, Ethelfled's daughter, as the ruler of Mercia, and he would absorb Mercia into his own kingdom. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, Stamford and Nottingham would submit to Edward, as did all the people of Mercia, both Viking and Saxon. This meant that Edward ruled all of England south of the Humber. The Danelaw was crumbling, their numbers dwindling, and many of their kings had been killed by the English. 
This was due to Edward's tenacity and bravery in taking action, which was birthed by his father's dream, but none of it would have been possible without the help of his sister, Ethelfled. Edward died at one of his royal estates in the year 924. At around the age of 50, he and his sister laid the blueprint for his son Ethelstan to unite England and be its first true king. Edward ruled an expanding realm for 25 years, and under his leadership, Viking kings and jarls were brought to heel, or were killed. His father was better remembered due to his decisive battle at Eddington, which saved England from Viking rule, and his court's ability to record most of his triumphs. But in my opinion, Edward should also be held in high esteem, as he took the steps to unify England and conquered much of the Danelaw. Edward the Elder was the most powerful of the Saxon kings at the time, and the power he held was considerable compared to that of his father Alfred. He also had about 14 children from three different marriages. This would become problematic, as upon the death of a king, chaos ensues. Ethelstan was born in the year 894, and he was the oldest son of Edward the Elder and his first wife, Egwin, but virtually nothing is known of her life and descent, so it's very hard to tell if she was of noble birth or just a commoner. It is not known what became of Ethelstan's mother, but his father King Edward would marry again, and he would have two half-brothers, Elfweird and Edwin. Edward the Elder would die on the 17th of July in the year 924. Both of his sons, Ethelstan and Elfweird, had ambition to be king. It is unclear who Edward wanted to be king after his death, and this would cause further death. Ethelstan was acknowledged as the king in Mercia, probably due to him growing up there with his aunt Ethelfled and having fought alongside the men. He also most likely got on well with the Mercian nobles, making him the obvious choice as their next king. Meanwhile, in Wessex, they chose Ethelstan's half-brother Elfweird as king, once again dividing the kingdoms. However, Elfweird would die just 16 days after his father Edward. His cause of death is unknown. Due to his cause of death being unrecorded, it is possible he was assassinated on the orders of Ethelstan himself, in order for him to become the king of all of Wessex as well as Mercia. Wessex would not proclaim Ethelstan as their king for some time, remaining defiant, furthering the suggestion that he killed his own brother. But he was ultimately crowned the king of Mercia and Wessex in the year 925. Schemes and plots would follow Ethelstan even after his coronation. An unknown nobleman planned to blind Ethelstan. On account of rumours of Ethelstan being an illegitimate son of Edward, making him a bastard, and thus not the true king. Blinding would have made Ethelstan unable to rule and lead his men, which would have made him step down as king. It is unknown if this plot was arranged by his other half-brother Edwin, but one thing was apparent, Wessex still didn't stand with their king. It seems a rebellion against Ethelstan was organised from within the royal house of Wessex itself. According to William of Malmesbury, Edwin planned to replace Ethelstan by having him blinded. Ethelstan then sent his brother into the sea on a leaking ship, with no oars or food, a cruel way to be condemned to death. Despairing, Edwin threw himself into the sea to drown. Ethelstan had by now most likely killed both of his brothers, and was now the overlord of Wessex, Mercia and East Anglia. His reign would begin with kinslaying and bloodshed, an omen of what his rule would bring to the people of his newly acquired kingdoms. Ethelstan now looked north to the work of his father Edward the Elder and his aunt Ethelfled, who had conquered the Danish territories in Mercia and East Anglia. Ethelstan now knew that the conquest of the entire Danelaw and Northumbria were possible. He just needed to wait for the right time to strike. Sitragur was the Viking king in Dublin and Northumbria, 
and was ruling York at the time of Ethelstan's ascent to power. He was a descendant of Ivar the Boneless, and belonged to the royal house of the Uyumer, a royal Norse-scale dynasty which ruled much of the Irish Sea region, the Kingdom of Dublin, the western coast of Scotland, and some parts of northern England from the mid-9th century. Ethelstan's grandfather Alfred had fought Ivar, and both men had gone on to forge kingdoms and legacies. Due to this, Ethelstan thought to join their families, and he gave Sitriga his sister to wife. This would broker a peace in the north, and Ethelstan would now have further influence there. The marriage took place in Mercia, in the royal centre at Tamsworth, where it seems Sitriga converted to Christianity. Soon after, however, he renounced his wife and reverted to paganism. However, a war between Sitriga and Ethelstan is not attested in any source. Sitriga died the following year in the year 927, still young according to the Annals of Ulster, and the cause of death remains unknown. A trend was now appearing. Powerful men with ties to Ethelstan who had slighted him all turned up dead shortly after, due to mysterious circumstances. Sitriga's cousin Goffraid was quickly proclaimed the King of Northumbria. Having sailed from Dublin with many warriors, he laid claim to the throne. However, Ethelstan would march north, and according to William of Malmesbury, following Sitriga's death, Ethelstan would meet his successor Goffraid in Scotia, in a meeting with many other high kings of Britain. After the meeting, Goffraid would lead a force to York, but Ethelstan would turn on the Vikings once they began besieging the city, and started to slaughter them, and captured their leader Goffraid. The city was looted by the Anglo-Saxons. Goffraid, the leader of the Irish Vikings, was allowed to live, but he left England, and was recorded to have never returned. The Vikings in York would now submit to Ethelstan, and proclaim him as king, after a simple power play. Northumbria had just fallen to Ethelstan, and his conquest of the Danelaw was now complete. He was now not just the king of the Saxons, but the king of the English. A meeting would soon be held, with all of the earls and kings in the north, and something truly legendary was about to take place. King Owain of Strathclyde, King Constantine of Alba, Ildred of Bambra, and Howell of Wales, all submitted to Ethelstan in the year 927, and accepted his supremacy. Ethelstan was now the most powerful king in the history of the Kings of Wessex, and the British Isles. However, the North had always resisted southern rule, and preferred to ally themselves with pagan kingdoms such as Norse Dublin. Due to a difference in culture, religion, and history, Ethelstan remained an outsider in the North, and his rule there would prove difficult. Although he was the first southern king in history to have taken the North, the resistance to his overlordship was to be expected. Nevertheless, Ethelstan's overlordship and power was respected and feared, which led to seven years of peace in the north. By the year 934, Ethelstan would look even further north. The kings of the north had sworn allegiance to him, but they wanted their kingdoms and independence back. They would plot in the shadows until their time came to strike. King Constantine of Alba would break the peace treaty forcing Ethelstan's hand. In the year 934, Ildred of Bambra would die, and Ethelstan and Constantine would dispute over the Northumbrian territory, causing the invasion of Scotland. At this point, Ethelstan had united all mainland England, and had a monstrous army, with the men of all faiths and cultures. Saxon men stood with him, as did the Vikings, and so did the Welsh. On Ethelstan's march north, four Welsh kings accompanied him, as did thirteen earls, conveying his power and supremacy above all other kings. Ethelstan and his men would make their way to Scotland by land and sea, engulfing the Scottish soil. 
his army reached as far north as Dunnetter Castle, which is the furthest north any English army had ventured since the year 685, while the fleet raided in Cathness. According to legend, Constantine recognised the power of Ethelstan and was faced with a difficult situation. To meet Ethelstan in open battle and risk defeat and surrender of the kingship of Scotland, or to try something else. He chose instead to take refuge in the great impregnable fortress at Dunnetter. Constantine was safe in his castle, but the whole of Britain had united, and Constantine saw his lands burning, and the Scots were being slaughtered, so he would sue for peace. Constantine would then accompany Ethelstan on his return south, and would swear his oaths of fealty. Ethelstan had now shown the British Isles the forces he could summon, and this display of power showed him as the most powerful king in living memory. Constantine the King of Alba had gone against his will, which resulted in war, but he was luckier than most, for he was left alive, and didn't die mysteriously in the chronicles after the disagreement with the English king. Nevertheless, Scotland was ravaged by the English invasion that effectively allowed Ethelstan to become the overlord of Scotland, while allowing Constantine to keep his title of king. Ethelstan had now shown all the northern and Scottish kings that they were no match for him, and that they could stand and die, or submit and live. The flames of war were ever apparent, and Ethelstan had made the north and Scotland bleed. Uniting them into his own kingdom would prove extremely difficult, as their leaders were bent on independence. In the year 934, Anulf Guthrinson succeeded his father Godfrey of Ivar as the Norse king of Dublin. Anulf would turn his attention towards Northumbria, a largely pagan land that had once been ruled by his father, but it had fallen to King Ethelstan there was a growing power looming in the south. Ethelstan, the son of Edward the Elder, was determined to unite England under the House of Wessex, and he had a vision for himself as the master of all Britain, dreaming of what no Roman Viking or Saxon king had ever done before. A few years after the invasion of Scotland, Anulf would marry King Constantine's daughter, cementing an alliance between the King of Dublin and the King of Alba. Factions were forming, Constantine had been conquered and humiliated by Ethelstan, and Anulf's father was exiled from Jorvik and had to renounce his kinship there while being betrayed by the English king. Both men had their reasons to hate Ethelstan, and it seems the King of Wessex's fragile peace was dissolving. So in the year 937, King Anulf and King Constantine would join forces with King Owain of Strathclyde in an alliance against King Ethelstan. Virtually all the kings that had sworn loyalty to him in the year 927 had now turned against him. Alone, they couldn't even challenge him, but together they thought they could crush him and take their lands and independence back. The three allied kings with their Scottish, Irish and Northern Army, would plunder English territory in the summer of the year 937, with their aim being to dissolve England, and break Ethelstan's source of power. This would culminate in the Battle of Brunanborough, and the victor would have England's fate in their hands. Ethelstan's army consisted of the men of Wessex, the Mercians, the Welsh, and many Vikings from the Danelaw and East Anglia. He had united most of England against the allied forces of the Irish Vikings and the modern-day Scottish forces. The invading armies entered England in two waves, Constantine and Owain coming from the north, raiding on their way south, while Anulf's forces would join them on the way. Ethelstan and his army would travel north through Mercia, where he met the invading forces of the Scots and Vikings at Brunanborough. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the battle lasted all day. Both sides would fight valiantly, 
but there were never so many dead in one place in England's history. The two armies would soon clash. Ethelstan's forces would make a shield wall and would hammer and drive their enemies back. Soon enough, an all-out battle would take place, and it was devastating. According to a poem called The Battle of Brunanburra, this is what transpired. Never has there been a greater slaughter since the Angles and the Saxons came here from the east. There was a period of prolonged fighting before Ethelstan's army began to overwhelm the invaders. It was a bloodbath, with many men being slain. The kings would fight valiantly, but God was with Ethelstan and his forces that day. Ethelstan's army would give chase, slaying many enemy troops. According to the Annals of Ulster, the battle was described as great, lamentable and horrible, and records that several thousands of Norsemen fell. Among the casualties were five kings and seven earls from Anulf's family. Constantine also lost several friends, including his son. The result of the battle was a victory for Ethelstan and his warriors, but thousands would lay dead on the battlefield. Many petty kings, princes and English nobles died in the battle, including two of Ethelstan's cousins. Ethelstan and his nobles would be in the thick of the fighting, leading their men to victory. For generations, this would be remembered as the Great Battle. King Anulf escaped back to Dublin, and King Constantine lost a son. Anulf remained King of Dublin, but his ambitions to take back Northumbria and York were lost for a time. Ethelstan saved England from the wrath of the allied kings of the north, but his lordship over them was lost, and he no longer held the influence he did years earlier. Before, he had ruled most of Scotland, Strathclyde, and had united the Danelaw and the Viking city of York. But after the great battle, Ethelstan's influence in Scotland and Strathclyde would dwindle, and he only held control of England, having lost his rule of Britain, but still ruled England. He now only held the lands up to Northumbria, which would still resist southern rule. Ethelstan would die in the year 939. He never married, nor fathered children, and the crown would pass to his younger brother Edmund, as soon as Ethelstan died, the men of York chose the Viking King of Dublin, Anulf, as their king, and the Anglo-Saxon control of the north collapsed, and united England became nothing but a memory. By the end of the year 939, Anulf returned to England and was crowned in York. The following year, he invaded East Mercia, aiming to recover lost parts of the Kingdom of York that had been conquered by Edward the Elder and his sister Ethelfled, the Lady of the Mercians. Simeon of Durham's Historia Regum records that Anulf and the new English king Edmund met at Leicester in the year 939 and came to an agreement on dividing England between the two of them. On the death of either, the survivor would inherit the whole country. The peace was short-lived, however, the Chronicle of Melrose records that Olaf raided an ancient Anglican church on the Scottish border. It seems Anulf was trying to take control of the whole north, but he would soon die in the year 941. At the time of his death, the Irish annals titled him the King of the Danes, being the great-grandson of Ivar the Boneless. His name held a lot of weight in early medieval Britain. With Anulf's death, Edmund would take the land back he had lost in the year 942. He would recover the five boroughs, and his victory was considered so valuable that it was commemorated by a poem in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Here King Edmund, Lord of the English, Guardian of Kinsmen, Beloved Instigator of Deeds, Conquered Mercia and the five boroughs, The Protector of Warriors, King Edmund. Anulf was succeeded as the King of York by his cousin Olaf Sidrikson, who was baptised in the year 943, with Edmund as his godfather. Suggesting he accepted Edmund's overlordship, 
This was common, much like when Edmund's grandfather, Alfred the Great, baptised Guthrum after much war. However, just a year later, Edmund would march to Northumbria and would invade the city of York with the help of the turncloak Archbishop Wolfston. Much of Edmund's rule was spent fighting the Vikings in the north in the aftermath of the death of his older brother Ethelstan. However, Edmund would effectively create the border of England with Scotland, cementing the English lands and what would be called England. In just three generations, from Alfred the Great to Edward the Elder to Ethelstan and Edmund, they had retaken the lands of England that were nearly lost to the great heathen army back in the year 865, from Wessex falling to Guthrum in the year 878, to Alfred defeating him against the odds, to Edward and Ethelfled expanding Mercia and Wessex, and then Ethelstan conquering the whole north and unifying Britain by the sword. The journey of how the House of Wessex became the Kings of England is an incredible story. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed the video, if you did, make sure to like, subscribe and share, and I'll see you all soon for another History Profile. Thank you.